Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. Today we are finishing 1 Nephi. And I hope that our last few weeks in it have been glorious for you. This is such an incredible way to begin this book of Scripture. Next week we'll be diving into 2 Nephi. And actually, it's a chance to come up for a little bit of air because we only have two chapters next week. That's going to be amazing. But that means we have seven chapters to cover this week to get there. So yeah, I'll be doing a lot more water skiing today, though there are some places to scuba dive that are absolutely incredible. Now to, to lay out the kind of the lay of the land, first of all, we're going to start with stories and then end with scriptures. Because the first half of this week's material, chapter 16, 17, and 18, are the, the narrative portion, the storyline. We're going to see them obtain the Liahona and make it through the wilderness and build the ship and cross the sea and arrive at the promised land. And then in chapter 19 through 22, we'll shift to the scripture side. All kinds of scriptures that Nephi is going to be wrestling with in 19. And then 20 and 21, he quotes Isaiah. So yeah, brace yourself. We usually think the Isaiah chapters are confined to 2 Nephi. Almost like this barrier that's hard to break through. Well, I will admit the 2 Nephi-Isaiah chapters are harder. But they start with Isaiah chapters here at the end of 1 Nephi. And they're actually easier to understand, which is helpful. <laughs> they're actually hopeful chapters of Isaiah. And we've got to understand them if we're going to make it through the harder sections later on. Actually, chapter 22, after he's quoted two chapters of Isaiah for us, he then gives us his interpretation of them. And it might surprise us. He understood Isaiah in ways that we typically don't. And so it's a great way to end things. Now, I'll admit, second half of today is harder than first half. But in the spirit of the Christmas season we just ended, I triple dog dare you to stick with me to the end. <laughs> there is something really important about what Nephi is going to lay out by way of grand finale of first Nephi and lay the foundation for second Nephi. So we've got to understand the Isaiah he's going to quote. Okay, But to get there, let's start with the storyline. And it's one, it's, they're stories that we're fairly familiar with. Now to set it up though, I want to be mosaic for a moment, if you'll allow me. Because I want to follow the example of Matthew. Matthew in the New Testament is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. Here, Matthew is a Jew writing to fellow Jews as his target audience. And in some way, it's perfect segue scripture because we've now finished the Old Testament and we have a very Jewish Gospel to transition from Hebrew Bible to Christian New Testament. In fact, many scholars have pointed out that Matthew may have crafted his Gospel to follow a Torah trajectory where Matthew 1 is the genesis of Jesus. It's his genealogy. Matthew 2 is the exodus of Jesus. He goes to Egypt and then comes back. Matthew 3 is the Leviticus of Jesus, because Leviticus is the priesthood handbook of instructions for ancient Israel. All these ordinances they're supposed to perform. And what's Matthew 3? Jesus' baptism, his ordinance. Matthew 4 is then the numbers of Jesus, because in numbers you've got 40 years of wilderness wanderings, and in Matthew 4 you've got 40 days of Jesus in the wilderness, which makes Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 the Deuteronomy of Jesus, which is beautiful. Because if Deuteronomy is the law, but on a higher level, if it's the second, Deutero, law, nomi, then here's Moses at Mount Nebo giving his great exhortation to the people. And here's Jesus at the Mount of Beatitudes giving them his, taking the law of Moses and then raising the bar in every aspect, not to destroy, to fulfill. Here's the Deuteronomy of Jesus. Other scholars, by the way, have expanded it even beyond to encompass the entire book of Matthew, 
where you have the same Genesis and Exodus, but they say the Leviticus of Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount. There's his law, raised bar and all. And then the numbers of Jesus is when he enumerates by compiling together a bunch of miracle stories in 8 and 9, a bunch of parables in 13, for example. And that leaves the Deuteronomy of Jesus to be his atonement and crucifixion and resurrection. There's the second law. There's the higher version. There's the law of love. And Moses' Nebo becomes Christ's Calvary, ushering us into a promised land yet to come. Matthew was a genius, but so was Nephi. And the way he's begun first Nephi was a genesis through and through. Nephi is our Adam. And we get his genesis, his origin story in the very first verse. I was born of goodly parents. We get the creation of Eve in Ishmael's daughters. Once Lehi realizes it's not good for his sons to be alone. You see the, the Garden of Eden in a literal tree of life in Lehi's dream, and then a metaphorical tree of knowledge in Nephi's visions, right? As so much knowledge being conveyed as he's trying to understand the interpretation thereof. You see a dramatic fall in the story of obtaining the brass plates. Because there's Nephi put in a place between two con contradictory commands and what's he going to do in this horrific moral dilemma? Will he live the higher law and keep the commandment of God that will allow him to continue his forward journey, even through a fallen wilderness. But that will require a loss of innocence on his part that would be gut-wrenching. Oh, I wonder how Eve would feel reading 1 Nephi chapter 4. You even see Cain and Abel in terms of Laman and Nephi and the Conflicts that are erupting between these two. There is a genesis there in the first half of First Nephi. But starting today, we're really in the Exodus. Actually, we've been here for a while. If you think about the Exodus from Egypt in terms of Lehi's departure from Jerusalem, wicked Jerusalem was spiritual Egypt to them, and they've got to go. They're being freed from that spiritual bondage to head off in a better direction. In fact, they're even plundering the riches of Egypt on the way. In ancient Israel, they were to take the jewelry and gold from their captors so that in the wilderness they could melt it down and turn it into, no, not a golden calf, that was wrong the first time, but rather into tabernacle furnishings. They got it right eventually. And for Nephi, it was his job to plunder the riches of Laban so they could have something not to melt down, but rather to show them the way in the wilderness. Speaking of showing them the way, ancient Israel had a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke. And what's Lehi's family going to get? A Leahona. We'll see that today. What other parallels do you see? Well, all kinds of murmuring that Moses was subjected to and that we're going to see today in chapter 16 as well. Murmuring from all kinds of angles, including one that would surprise you. You will see manna not in its original Israelite form, but rather you will see God miraculously providing food for Lehi's party. When he shows Nephi how to find it in a miraculous way, or when God does the cooking, quote-unquote. How about the crossing of the Red Sea? Well, they crossed a sea all right, and it wasn't on dry ground, but the fact that a landlubber like Nephi could build a ship that could handle that kind of ocean voyage, well, there's a miracle on the level of parting the Red Sea as far as I'm concerned. 
there's some interesting parallels. And by the time we get to 2 Nephi next week, there's Lehi's Deuteronomy. There's Lehi on his Mount Nebo giving his final exhortation and blessings to his posterity as they launch forward into life in the promised land. There really are some amazing parallels. And I hope we can bring in a third parallel, namely our own lives, and ponder our own Genesis, wrestle with our own Exodus. I'm in these stories. And perhaps the best place to start seeing it is with the Liahona, which is where we're going to begin. Now, we first see it in chapter 16, verse 10. And notice how it's described. It came to pass that as my father arose in the morning and went forth to the tent door, to his great astonishment, he beheld upon the ground a round ball. Now, what was so astonishing about this thing is what we're about to see as it's described. Three elements. Number one, it's of curious workmanship. Ask Alice in Wonderland about that, right? And it's curiouser and curiouser to the point that they know this is definitely not man-made. This thing must be a gift from God, and I've never seen anything like it. I'm going to have to wrap my head around this to understand how it works. Now, number two, it was of fine brass. And we've already seen something of fine brass, haven't we? We've got the brass plates, and I wonder if there's meant to be similar symbolism here. There's going to be some differences, of course, but the, the brass plates gave us the commandments to know how to move forward in our, in our lives, in our journey. And this brass ball is going to do something similar. Now, third, within the ball were two spindles, and the one pointed the way whither we should go into the wilderness. And so that, there's the obvious parallel to the pillar and the smoke, uh, because we are being pointed in the way we should go, so we can get there. Now, I've always wondered, by the way, why two spindles? Wouldn't, and why does only one point the way you ought to go? <laughs> and it's like, and are they clearly labeled? Because if I'm looking at the one that isn't the one that points the way, and I think it is, then I'm in a world of hurt, right? Uh, we got some problems here. And I'm going to need all the help that I can get to make it through the wilderness. And I better know which way I'm going. You think back to Lehi's dream. Which voices am I heeding? Because if I'm listening to the great and spacious building, when I think it's the prophet at the tree, I'm in trouble. I actually had an engineer point out to me, like, actually, perhaps the second spindle was more of a fail-safe to let you know when the first spindle was functioning properly. Picture like a light on the instrument panel that shows that everything's working properly so you can trust all the other instruments, as opposed to that light going off and then saying, oh, something's amiss, you better check everything before you start blindly moving forward. And I thought, ooh, that's fascinating. So it's like, does the one spindle say, yep, everything's working right, namely, you're working right, so you can move forward with confidence from here on out. Now, that's one set of details, but I'm going to skip ahead and see some other details and try to wrap our heads around what the Lehona does before we see what it represents. For this, jump to 16. We follow the directions of the ball, which led us in the more fertile parts of the wilderness. Great detail there. I mean, they're traveling through the Arabian Peninsula, which is basically death by desert. And yeah, you're going to need to know, is there anything I can live on out here? Point me to the more fertile parts, places where trees of life might grow to provide fruit for me, places where living water might be flowing. Yes, I'm looking for fertile parts as I navigate through a pretty bleak and desolate worldly waste. Jump ahead to verse 28, and this is after they've been complaining about the food, and then they turn to the Liahona for direction on where to go find it. 
and they're blown away by, by what they see. Verse 28, the pointers which were in the ball, they saw that they did work according to the faith and diligence and heed which we did give unto them. And it's like, yikes. Oh, no. Okay. That maybe explains the fail-safe need uh, or the need for the fail-safe in the other spindle. It doesn't always work because I don't always work. Oh, I have to exercise faith that I'm doing what I should. I have to have faith that this thing will actually work at all. I have to be diligent in keeping the commandments of God. I have to give heed to the direction this thing is pointing me in or it won't point me in the right way. Can you imagine if every technology we relied upon <laughs> relied upon our own faith and diligence and heed or it just wouldn't work? I mean, I've had some cars like that, I'll admit, that seem to function more on faith than on fuel, where every time I put the key in the ignition, I would literally pray, please let this work. And sometimes it wouldn't, and I'd pop the hood and like jiggle some wires and then pray again, and sometimes it still wouldn't work, and I'd pray again, and usually eventually it would. I actually had my children with me on some of those occasions, and it was amazing, like, okay, kids, we really have to pray, because I don't know how to fix anything here. but. God does, and so please, add your faith. And when the key would turn and it would burst into life, it was amazing for us all. It taught me something. It called out a degree of faithfulness on my part. But imagine if every time you fired up your computer, it would only boot up if you were worthy, if you were going to use it for worthy purposes. Imagine if your heater would only turn on when you weren't overheated with the people that lived there, lived at home with you. If the air conditioning would only function if you were in a condition to keep God's commandments. That would be interesting. Well, in spiritual matters, it all works that way. And you'll never really get much out of Scripture. The Scriptures won't really work if we don't have faith and diligence and heed. It's like what President Benson said. The Book, the Book of Mormon is not on trial. We are. The Liahona isn't on trial. It works when we work. And so if something seems to be out of whack with our temple attendance or our church service or whatever it might be, look inward. And is there a little more faith and diligence and heed I can exercise? Now, one other detail is in verse 29. I love this one. There was also written upon them, on these spindles, a new writing, which was plain to be read which did give us understanding concerning the ways of the Lord. Notice ways is plural. The spindles are pointing the way of the Lord, but the writing that appears explains the ways of the Lord. How does he function? How am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to do to make sure these spindles point in the right way? Oh, I understand God's ways. But notice this de detail. It was written and changed from time to time. Again, according to the faith and diligence which we gave it. And then Nephi says, And thus we see that by small means the Lord can bring about great things. Yeah, you think? By the way, we usually associate that phrase, and thus we see, with Mormon. He uses it more than anyone. Where he you know, breaks the fourth wall and peers off the page at, his, at its readers and says, Hey, you seeing the same thing I'm seeing? This is what, here's the moral of the story. And I wonder if he learned it from Nephi. In fact, historically, if he sees the small plates at the end, 
and then notices something like that, that and says, wow, that's genius. To point out, to make sure the reader understands what we're learning, I should have done that. That makes me wonder, does he go back through the large plates, his abridgment, and insert those and all those? Probably not, since it's gold and it's hard to inscribe, hard to insert on metal. But interesting that somehow he has that same gift of Syriac sight and wants to share it with us. Are you seeing what I see? Nephi, what's his takeaway when it comes to the Liahona? Man, small things. Small things like spindles and, and writings and, and brass, but also small things like acts of faith and diligence and heed. That's what brings about incredible guidance. So trust in that. Stick to it. Okay. Now we could stop there and think, wow, what an amazing gift. This Liahona is amazing, and that's what's going to guide them on their way. Uh, what's the Liahona to me? Well, it can be scripture. It can be spirit. It can be living prophets. So many different examples. But what if I'm the Liahona? What if I'm wired a little like that? Because there was actually an article years ago that's really famous, especially in certain circles in the church, where people were defined as either Liahonas or what do you think the alternative would be? Ah, what, what else have we seen by way of direction to get to a goal? What about the iron rod? And years ago, Richard Pohl wrote an, an incredible essay describing Liahona Latter-day Saints as opposed to iron rodders. And there was some real wisdom in what he said, although I, there was also a little, I, I felt like pushing back against a few things, and I'm going to do that here. Because if we just separate it and say you're either this or the other, uh, that's a dichotomy instead of a paradox. And a paradox is taking the dichotomy and forcing it to stay together because somehow they're supposed to fit. Now, those of you who know me are probably thinking, oh, I feel a contrary coming on. And yes, you guessed right. Because if we can keep Liahona and Iron Rod together, it's one of my favorite contraries here at the beginning of the Book of Mormon. Because they're different in important ways, but they each need the difference of its counterpart. Otherwise, they both kind of get whacked. Uh, on, on the, in the distance. I've taught this before. A virtue becomes a vice when it's pushed to the extreme. And a, an iron rod without a liahona can become problematic and vice versa as well. So let me spell this out with a chart, okay? Because the chart can help us see the two sides of the contrary I'm trying to prove here. On the one side we see the iron rod and the other side we see the liahona. And if we picture the the, the rail, the banister version of the iron rod. I know we talked about the shepherd's staff last week, and that's, and, and that's beautiful too. But to picture it as in terms of fixity, which then leaves flexibility for the Liahona side. Okay? Uh, iron rod is clear, it's straightforward, it's hand or hand the rod along, and you just hold it and you get to the goal. Whereas the, the, the liahona is far more flexible with spindles moving and words changing and it seems to be situation specific. It's more GPS than map, so to speak. On the iron rod side of the chart, let's call it clear commandments to keep. And under liahona, let's call it principles to be applied, which again will be situation specific. On the iron rod side, there's obedience. And on the liahona side, there's discernment. Well, there's your faith and diligence and heed. Which in some ways would say or suggest that the iron rod is more letter of the law, while the liahona is more spirit of the law. 
And that's really where Richard Pohl goes in terms of how people are wired. And some wired for strict obedience and letter of the law kind of observance, and other people wired more for flexible discernment and spirit of the law. And yeah, I don't know if this applies in this situation, and maybe I should do that instead. Okay? You with me on this? Now, there's one other level on the, on the chart I want to add. One more line. And this is where I really want us all to wrestle with the liahona and with the iron rod. Because here I want to superimpose our model of creation, fall, atonement, stages of faith. And I'm going to put creation under the iron rod, and I'm going to put fall under the liahona. Uh, let's ask for some help from Elder Hafen and Sister Hafen about the, the simplicity, complexity, and simplicity on the other side of complexity, which again follows the creation, fall, atonement story arc. So there is a simplicity, a creation stage simplicity in Iron Rod, because it's, it's fixed, it's stable, it gets you where you need to go. There's not a lot of wiggle room, right? And that's helpful because it's, it's clearly demarking the path. Whereas the complexity of the fall stage, the nuance and the ambiguity, and sometimes it seems to work and sometimes it, seem, it doesn't seem to, and, and it, not everything is so clearly spelled out in life. There's some messiness here, some ambiguity we have to learn to deal with. And that's true. Now, here's the caution I would say to anyone that has, is familiar with, with Paul's essay. Because he tended, at least in my reading, he tended to associate it with people and personalities. Where I would prefer to associate it with principles uh, and, and moments and, and what am I supposed to do in a, in a given situation. Because here's the thing, if I just label myself an iron rod at Latter-day Saint, then I, hey, good news, I'm obedient. I'm strict. I follow the letter of the law. This is how it's supposed to be. I hold myself accountable to it, and these, these make great missionaries, they're, they're great, someone that you can totally trust, they're going to do what they said, people of integrity. Now that's not to say people on the other side are not people of integrity, but the challenge on the other side is not everything's so cut and dried. It's, it's hard sometimes, and sometimes the letter of the law can be so stifling and strict that you may... You may think you're doing what God wants you to do, but in this situation, there's an exception to that rule. And he's asking me to do this. Go back to the fall in the garden. Go back to the fall in Jerusalem that night with Nephi and Laban. There has to be spirit directing us. And that's true. So, that, so what about those people on that side? And my, my personality, as a person, I'm wired toward, I'm a, I'm a Leahona Latter-day Saint. And that's a beautiful thing because you embrace that flexibility. You embrace that nuance and you can handle ambiguity. Unfortunately, maybe, you might revel in it to the point that you don't want to touch clarity and specificity and strict obedience with a 10-foot pole. Because again, it feels too confining and constricting to you. Now, rather than label people that way, if we were to label principles that way, I think we'd be a little safer. Because there do seem to be certain principles of the gospel that are Strict and straightforward, and this is how it, this is how you do it. In some ways, uh, tithing is an iron rod principle because it's just ten percent. You just do the map, move the decimal point, and it's clear if you paid it or not. Whereas fast offerings seem to be more Liahona-like because it's totally up to you of how generous you're you're choosing to be. Where would you place the Sabbath? 
Unfortunately, people who put the Sabbath as an iron rod principle can lead to the kind of Pharisaism that Jesus kept pushing back against every time he did something that they said was breaking the Sabbath. And he's like, no, no, no. This person's in need and think about what's going on. Can we move to the Leahona side of things and realize this is exactly what I should be doing on the Sabbath day? There's a lot of flexibility there, a lot of discernment that's required of us, right? And so in my mind, instead of just saying, oh, I'm a Leahona or I'm an iron rod, in this moment, which of the two should I be using? I tell my students all the time, you have to master them both. <laughs> Equally adept at keeping the letter of the law and following the spirit of the law, depending on the situation you're in. Because there will be times you're following the rod, hand or hand, and this feels comfortable to you. It's like, this is how I'm wired. This is awesome. I know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm right because I'm doing it. And then all of a sudden, the iron rod kind of like gives out. It's gone. And you're like, whoa, 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 what, what's happening? But as you search for the, the, where, the, where it's supposed to continue, you feel at the base of the iron rod this round ball of curious workmanship. And you're like, what's going on? And you look at it and the spindle says, welcome to the, this new stage of your discipleship. You need to be able to follow the direction of the Holy Ghost in areas and at times where it's not crystal clear what you should do. I'll make it clear, but you've got to trust in me. It's not going to be spelled out for you. You ready for this? And so it's like a person who's only followed the iron rod is like, ah, okay, I think I can do this and I hope I can. Whereas vice versa, you picture a Leahona Latter-day Saint and they love this flexibility and ambiguity and maybe I'll do this and maybe I won't and I've got all this. It's, again, great things, but sometimes problematic when the Leahona, all of a sudden the spindle points to an iron rod and you're like, you kidding me? No, I, that's not what I do. I don't need that kind of stuff. And so you kind of shake up the Leahona like it's the magic eight ball in hopes that it'll change. And when it settles back in, sure enough, the, Leo, the spindle points right back to the iron rod. You shake it again, and pretty soon both spindles are pointing that way. And the words change to say, come on, this is a clear-cut one. You've got to follow the, the rule. It's situation-specific, like I keep saying. And we have to get better at honoring the pros and being aware of the cons of both sides here. Because as I've said before, people in creation and people in fall tend to have a lot of mutual animosity. And people in creation look down their nose at people in fall saying, where's your faith? And people in fall look down their nose or look back at people stuck back in creation and say, where's your brain? And they can't stand each other. It's only in the atonement stage where you, you get along with everybody and you understand the pros and cons of every preceding stage in the journey and you realize, oh, the pros of creation offset the cons of fall and vice versa. Because we're proving contraries here, and each side acts as an anchor to keep its opposite from tending toward extremes. If I can master the Leahona, it keeps my iron rod from becoming legalistic and overly strict and judgmental. But if I've mastered the iron rod, it keeps my Leahona from tending towards moral relativism and, and spiritual chaos. Do you understand the need for both and the dangers at both extremes? We've got to come together on this and learn to follow whichever form of guidance God is giving us in the moment. Okay? There's actually one other detail to recognize here that's absolutely mind-blowing once you see it, and that's chronologically when does the Leahona appear? 
again, I don't want to make this seem like I graduated from the iron rod and now I'm only going to use the liahona. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a certain sense of I need to master the one before I'm ready for the other. There's an order in this particular contrary. And it's only after mastering the first that I'm ready for the second. And by now, hopefully the second can offset the cons of the first. But what I've mastered in the first will protect me from falling prey to the cons of the second. For that, go back to the verses right before the Liahona appears. And you'll see what God might have been waiting for. Go back to verse 8 and 9. Remember, the Liahona appears in 10, so notice what leads up to it. Verse 8, Thus my father had fulfilled all the commandments of the Lord, which had been given unto him. And also I, Nephi, had been blessed of the Lord exceedingly. Now that's a weird parallel. It's like my dad was totally obedient, and I would expect him to say, and so was I. But instead, Nephi says, dad was totally obedient, and I was totally blessed as well. You're like, wait, wait, how do those coincide? Well, that shows the paradigm that Nephi lived in, which is a beautiful one. Obedience defines him from start to finish. I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. And he always did. Obedience is how is the grand finale of 1st Nephi and the grand finale of 2nd Nephi. Commands and obedience runs throughout 1st and 2nd Nephi like a golden thread. It defines Nephi. And for him, that's blessedness. He's not just saying that obedience leads to blessedness. He's saying obedience is blessedness. It's that paradigm in in the Doctrine and Covenants that we are being crowned with commandments, not a few. I see commandments as a blessing in and of themselves. Crown me with more. And that's exactly what's about to happen. Nephi has the proper attitude toward commandments as a blessedness. But then he says in verse 9, And it came to pass that the voice of the Lord spake unto my father by night and commanded him that on the morrow he should take his journey into the wilderness. Now think about this. Verse 8 suggests you have kept every commandment I've given you and with the proper attitude on top. So verse 9, what are you now ready for? More commandments. Here's additional commandments on your crown. I've given you commandments to get you to this point and you've kept every one. But you're about to launch out into the unknown and are going to need a new set of commandments to help you navigate it. Again, if Lehi was a trader, has he he gotten to the point where he's exhausted his knowledge of the trade routes? And now it's like, okay, I'm really going off into the unknown. No wonder they're going to need a Liahona. The iron rod's clarity will not get them through the unknown that lies ahead of them. They're going to need the discernment that that the Liahona is is dependent on. But think about all of that order. You mastered the first set. Now you're ready for the second set. But this second set is going to require a different approach and it's going to be more Liahona-like. So what do I do in the very next verse? I give you the Liahona. But I'm giving it to you, again, not to replace Iron Rod, but to expand upon it. And I've, I'm only, I only feel comfortable giving it to you because you've shown that you've mastered the, the, the previous. Does that make sense? It's not that Liahona is better, but it's harder. It's not, and when we go back to the, to the letter of the law, spirit of the law, unfortunately, I hear a lot of people invoke the spirit of the law to justify walking all over the letter of the law. When in reality... The spirit of the law 
is meant to purify our living of the letter of the law. It's meant to inspire us and guide us whenever an exception appears. And again, not as like, hey, get out of jail free card. I mean, I'm trusting the spirit of the law on this one. No, that's, it's not a get out of law card. It's what's the purpose of this law? And the spirit is guiding me to achieve that purpose, but in a different way because it's higher or holier or the, the situation requires it. Yeah, I hope this makes sense. If you need to pause the video and just ponder and pray, Heavenly Father, help me understand. How am I using, how do I view both letter and spirit? How do I navigate both Iron Rod and Liahona principles? How do I get past just labeling myself one or the other or labeling my opposites, the one or the other, and looking down in anger? It's going to be pride from above and pride from below and arguing over who's above and who's below and all kinds of conflict and nobody gets to the atonement stage. But if we can learn to use both in the ways that they were intended, if I can navigate and grow up in God in the proper order and transcend things but still include the benefits of what I gained in the prior stage, mm, that's safe navigation. That's faith and diligence and heed. That's making it to the promised land. And I hope that if we've mastered that, we won't murmur quite so much in our own circumstances and what we're going through or in the way those around us are navigating theirs. Because what we'll see from here on out in 1 Nephi 16 is murmur, 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 murmur. That's all we got. Now for this, I'm going to do it quickly. Uh, and show you just a few things to ponder as you study 1 Nephi 16, looking for the murmuring, okay? The first one is actually how the chapter begins, uh, with Laman and Lemuel murmuring. Nephi has just explained the tree of life to them in chapter 15, and ends with this note of separation between righteous and wicked, and who gets to come to the tree, and who's kind of stuck in the building, or floating, or drowning down the river. And that kind of hurts because in dad's dream, wait, we didn't take the tree. We didn't eat the fruit. So where does that leave us? And they're kind of ticked off about it. So the way chapter 16 begins is them saying to Nephi, these are hard things. And that's more than I can handle. This is the Nephite equivalent of John chapter 6, the, the bread of life discourse where Jesus has taught some hard things and the disciples say, forget this. These are hard sayings. Who can hear them? And they leave. Now, Laman and Lemuel are threatening to leave throughout this chapter because it started with hard things. And Nephi's like, whoa, 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 whoa. They're only hard mm, if they need to be. If the truth hurts, it, it's meant to be redemptive. It's a wake-up call. It's a pricked conscience. And I hope it's only pricked. Because what Nephi says, if you were to read chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, pay attention to the language that's used. He says, it's only the wicked that take the truth to be hard. And I wasn't labeling you. I was just saying, this is the issue. You get to pick. Because the righteous love this stuff. It actually justifies them. It really is a two-edged sword. And it hurts the wicked, but it helps the righteous. And it clarifies which side we're on. In some ways, there's another spindle on the Liahona, and am I, am I going in the right way? And the problem with, with it hurting is the word that he uses at the end 
where he says, The guilty take the truth to be hard, for it cutteth them to the very center. And if you remember last year our discussion of the book of Acts, Peter gave all kinds of similar sermons calling his Jewish audience to repentance because of the way they rejected the Messiah. And in one of those instances, it says they were pricked in their heart. And they asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, well, repent and be baptized. And they all did. Amazing conversion story. Because the pain they felt was a, the pain of a pin prick, a pricked conscience. Their heart was soft enough. It was like, ooh, that hurts. And I, I want to change. There's godly sorrow welling up. Whereas in two other instances, one when he's preaching, another when Stephen's preaching, the people weren't pricked in their heart. They were cut in their heart. Interesting difference. It suggests a hard heart that can't just be pricked. It has to be cut and broken because it doesn't want to change. It's the wicked who take the truth to be hard when it cuts them and they hold on to that wickedness instead of being soft enough to change. Ponder that one as you begin chapter 16. The second round of murmuring happens when everybody gets hangry, which is the combination of hunger and anger, right? And if you remember the story here, and again, read it and look at some of the details. It's really interesting. For example, if you look at verse 18, Nephi says, My brethren were angry with me because of the loss of my bow, for we did obtain no food. And I always go, well, what's your problem, Laman and Lemuel? Is Nephi the designated food getter? I mean, why? Yeah, he seems like he's got a good bow, but don't you have any? Now, we find out later that they've got bows of their own, but they've got some problems with their bows. They lost their springs. But notice they're not blaming themselves. Oh, why would I when I've got a, a convenient whipping boy, a scapegoat to use? And no wonder they're not finding any goats in the wilderness to kill. They already found a goat in the wilderness, and they're labeling their little brother that scapegoat and want to kill him. It's so interesting how often we get into hard times and instead of looking inward with the Lord is it I, we look outward and say, oh, it must be him. And we project our own problems on other people so we have someone else to, I mean, psychologically, that's what the brain does. It tries to protect itself from pain. And admitting that I've got a problem with my own bow, who wants to do that? No, I'm going to look around at somebody else. If I'm a Leahona, it's those punk iron rodders. If, an iron, iron, if I'm an iron rodder, it's those those relativistic uh, Leahonas out there. No, instead of looking inward, and where, where am I going wrong? Where can I strengthen my bow? So I can actually contribute and go hunting instead of blaming someone else for not doing the hunting for me. Interesting issue. There's another thing here as you read that might shock us, and it's Laman and Lemuel complaining, that's not surprising at all, but that Lehi joins in. And Lehi, good old father, goodly parents. And it, he never complained even when, when Sariah broke down back in chapter 5. But there's an interesting point. Because if chapter 5 was Sariah's faith crisis, 1 Nephi 16 is Lehi's faith crisis. In some ways, what we're looking for is, what's our breaking point? And for Sariah, the breaking point was the potential loss of her children. Doesn't that sound like a mother heart? My boys are dead. I, it shouldn't take this long. You visionary man, and I can't blame her. In this case, is Lehi simply hangry? And uh, my stomach's 
killing me and I'm going to take it out on Nephi because I'm too old to hunt. I shouldn't have to do this. I give Lehi more credit than that. But how then would I define his breaking point? And again, if it's a mother heart that makes the potential loss of her sons so difficult, what's going on in a father heart where his role as father is to preside? He's been doing that beautifully. And to protect, he's been trying to do that. We've got to get out of Jerusalem before I'm ever going to protect you. But to provide. And here's a moment where a father cannot provide for his family. It's like, God, where are the promises? Where are we going to find food? I, my, everybody's got issues. Lehi, or Nephi's bow is broken. Laman and Lemuel's bows don't have their spring. And I, I can't do it. And I've had moments where I, where I get, where I lose the spirit, not because I'm hungry or angry, but because I'm frustrated that I can't provide for my family in a way that they deserve or need. It's, I'm just trying to make it to the next paycheck, or I've got the, the medical bills to pay, and it's, and it's times like that that I get frustrated with self or wonder if I should have found a different job that would, that would pay better, or whatever kinds of things. I've had some interesting experiences with that over the years. And there's been, always been times where the Lord just comes back and reassures, and family comes to the rescue, and it's, it's amazing. But I get it, Nephi, or Lehi. I would be at the end of my rope if I couldn't be the father I know I'm supposed to be. So don't throw them under the bus. This is in some ways a weakness that's growing out of their strength. And that's true of both mother and father in this story. But notice how Nephi deals with it. Again, there's some interesting wordplay where he talks about, for example, my brothers were afflicted with hunger. I, on the other hand, was afflicted with my brothers. <laughs> it's like, okay, you're not hungry, but man, you're wishing to feast on some, some peacemaking in the family. Well, he, what Nephi does is amazing. He goes to his father. Again, he presides. Nephi's not in charge. Lehi is. So he goes to his father. And despite the fact he knows that his father is in no position to lead spiritually, because he's been murmuring against God, where are the promises? You said you'd provide? Nephi trusts his potential and looks past his actual and says, Dad, where should I go to obtain food? The liahona was God's gift to you. And there's no iron rod that's going to show us where the, the animals are. It's not that clear. They're on the move. And so I need a compass that can be on the move as well. And so, Dad, will you seek the Lord's direction? Now, it's then, I already, we already read these verses, but it's then that he looks at the liahona and says, oh yeah, where are we supposed to go? And then it's like, they, wait, these words are appearing. Hey, this is only going to work if you're faithful and diligent and will heed. And he's like, oh no, I haven't been. And talk about a gut check for the dad. As Lehi realizes, it's not going to work because I haven't been working. But I do know the tender mercies of the Lord. He sent me to cry repentance to the wicked Jerusalemites. And that means repentance is an option for me too. And I will do just that. I love it actually says, as you read the text, that the Lord chastens Lehi in a way that only the Lord can, I suppose. Uh, it's a, a calling to the mat, uh, God and his prophet, 
And I'm sure God did it with just the right balance of justice and mercy, far better than Nephi would ever be able to do himself. And I love the fact that Nephi just, I'm going to leave that in the Lord's hands. As I, might, as I meet with people that sometimes have questions and wrestle and doubts about church leadership, uh, local or general, whatever it might be, and they just, ah, but I, my bishop is this, or my stake president did that, or whatever. And I, I would trust the, Le- the Nephi model here of giving them the benefit of the doubt, even when you know their imperfection. Not holding them to some standard of infallibility that is impossible for anyone to reach, but actually trusting them enough to leave them in God's hands. To to ask them to do things to help you that they'll only be able to do with the Spirit of the Lord. And then giving them the time and the belief, the loyalty and love and hope that you're going to be able to do this. Because it really is your role, not mine. Nephi's not in charge yet. He, he's not the owner of the Leahona yet. I actually had a student years ago in Tennessee, wonderful young lady, that asked me for a priesthood blessing. And I asked her how time-sensitive the blessing was. And in that case, it wasn't a, a sickness that needed healing in the very moment. It was concern, and you just needed counsel and comfort and spiritual strength. And I said, I, how about this? Because I knew the family situation a little bit, and I asked her about asking her father for a priesthood blessing, and she said, my father's never given me a priesthood blessing. I love my dad, I know he loves me, but he just feels a sense of inadequacy, and I, I, he, he's never done it. And, and I shared this story with her, and said, what do you think it would be like for your dad if recognizing his sense of inadequacy and worrying about all of that, if you were to go to him nonetheless and say, Dad, I really need a Father's blessing. It, not today. Not this week, not next month. Not any time until you feel ready to give it to me. But it needs to come from you. And whenever you feel ready, you let me know. And I'll be ready to receive the blessing. And I asked her, how do you think he'd react? And she's like, oh, I don't know. It'd be a leap of faith for him. I'm like, yeah, and would this be a leap of faith for you? But she took the leap. And eventually, her dad did too. I can't remember how long it took, but man, she was on cloud nine. And she floated into Institute one day and just said, my dad gave me a priesthood blessing. And yeah, maybe it wasn't as eloquent or as polished or whatever as someone that... has done it a million times. But man, it changed their relationship. It changed her father. He saw himself in a different light because he had a daughter that believed in him. And here's Nephi believing in his dad despite the fact he knows his dad has come down a few rungs on the ladder. I know you're goodly in the best kinds of ways, dad. I know it, this weakness is an aspect of your strength, but it's your strength that I need, so come back to it. I'm just going to leave you in God's hands and let the two of you work it out. I'm not, I'm not calling you to repentance. I'm not pointing out the flaws. I, I trust you're aware of it, and I trust that God will make you aware of it when, when you're having to do something that you cannot do on your own. 
you can't manipulate the liahona to work if you're not in tune with it, in tune with God. So I'm just going to leave the two of you, and God takes care of it. By the way, by the end of chapter 16, similar problems are going to take place with Laman and Lemuel. And Nephi, again, lets God take care of it, and God does. God offers the chastisement, and he knows just how to do it with just enough justice to wake us up, just enough mercy to reassure us. You understand? It's so much better than us trying to do it. Whether that means shaming Lehi, that he's not living up to his potential, or ignoring Lehi and trying to do an end around and just take over the Liahona because Nephi was worthy of it working. No, there's something profound here, and Nephi seems to do it just right. Now, in the interest of time, I'm not going to get into the details of the third round of murmuring, nor the fourth. The third, we're back to Laman and Lemuel. And Laman and Lemuel, no, excuse me, the, that's the fourth. The third, we are with Ishmael's daughters. And Ishmael has just passed away. There's some interesting archaeology to wrestle with, by the way, when they have gone through a place which they named Shazer, but then they go to a place that was already called Nahum, and there's an altar of Nahum that, that's gotten all kinds of interesting uh, focus from Latter-day Saint archaeologists and scholars, because it's like, whoa, okay, evidence in the Arabian Peninsula that late Lehi is going through a place that's already known, and there's the place. I'm not going to get into the detail there, but all kinds of stuff has been written and videos and so on about that. So it's, it's, it's interesting and, and, and fascinating. But to me, what's more fascinating is the human element. I'm not an archaeologist. I, <laughs> I work with people. And the human element of these women, when, what, what gets, what's their breaking point? They've been faithful. They've been strong. They've been submissive. And suffered a lot. But the breaking point for them was the loss of their father. And again, can you blame them? Well, they start blaming Lehi. It's your fault. And now we're back to Sariah. Why did you do it? And it's back to Nephi. Dad, I know this isn't your commandment. It's God's. And Lehi is so thrilled that somebody finally gets it. But all of that is happening there as they catastrophize. We're going to die out here. As they blame, this is your fault as they come to fortune telling that it's going to, this is what's going to happen and it's worst case scenario. All the kinds of negative thought patterns that we fall into when we go through hard, hard things. That's human nature that you'll see in these very human daughters of Ishmael. And that's that third round that then spurs the fourth round where Laman and Lemuel are now livid because their wives are suffering. And again, that's not a bad breaking point. We just have to figure out how do I get past all those breaking points and just come to God with a broken heart instead. But Laman and Lemuel are so angry because all of, all of this is happening. And again, they are pushing back against Father Lehi, pushing back against Brother Nephi. Pay attention to the end of, chap of chapter 16 and you'll see what they're wrestling with. But again, you'll see God intervene and say, I've got this taken care of. He chastens them. He whips them into shape as much as, he, as much as they're willing. And now we're ready to move forward on the journey into chapter 17. Now chapter 17 is a long one and we'll really have to water ski. But pointing out the construction of the ship, it's beautiful how it's described from the very beginning. 
Verse 8 and 9, Thou shalt construct a ship, God tells Nephi, after the manner which I shall show thee. I mean, I know you've never seen this done, and, and any kind of ship you're already familiar with is going to be insufficient for the kind of voyage I've got in mind. So yes, I'm going to have to prepare you for this. I'm going to have to show you how it's done. But then I love the pronouns here. So, I will show thee that I may carry thy people across these waters. This is going to be very personal for God. I'm going to carry them. Now, I could use a ship to make it a little more clear to you how I'm doing it, but I'm the one in charge and I will make sure you get there. But I'm trying to develop some skill sets and some, some attributes in you along the way, so go build this ship. Now, it's been a rough journey thus far. We're going to see it described here. It's been eight years in the wilderness. The verb that's used is to wade. They've been wading through affliction, which is such a great visual aid. Uh, they're not drowning in it. That's a huge difference. But they are wading in it. And how deep? Well, I guess that depends on the moment. Wading through water slows you down a bit. But it also builds some muscles, some leg muscles, some core strength. You're fighting against opposition in the form of that water. And that's what they've been doing. Now, they finally get to the land bountiful. And again, there's some amazing archaeology behind that, too. And places along the southern Arabian coast in Oman, for example, and, and Kar Kafot, and these places that, that fit every detail of the story in chapter 17 in terms of a cliff that Laman and Lemuel could push Nephi off of and ore that could be down, molten down into, into metal to make tools, uh, trees to use wood for the, the ship, all kinds. It's amazing. Things that Joseph Smith never could have known. Okay? Uh, again, I, I care more about spiritual truth than archaeological truth. That's just how I'm wired. Uh, so I'm not going to get into that, although there's so much of it that's accessible online. But what's interesting to me is the Lord's promise. I'll carry them. I just have some work for you to do. So this is synergistic. Uh, you work, I carry. And Nephi's like, great, sounds good. And in fact, Nephi's response is so beautiful because he just says, he doesn't say, I, but I'm a landlubber. Uh, Jerusalem's landlocked. I, I don't know how to build ships. Instead, in fact, he doesn't even just say, okay, give me the tools and the material and the plans and I'll take it from there. No, he just says, where, is, where can ore be found? And I'll take it from there. I, I, don't, I, just, I just don't know the geology of the region. But once you point out where ore is, I'll dig out the ore. I'll do all that work myself. I'll melt it down into metal. I'll do all that my, work myself. I'll forge it in, in, into tools and then use those tools to build the ship according to the plans that you are going to reveal to me. There's some interesting synergism. God, I need you to only do the things I can never do. But anything I can do, I'll take it from there. This is Jesus raising Lazarus from the grave. Only he can do that. But any of you mere mortals can roll the stone. A little help? Any of you mere mortals can unwrap the grave clothing. A little help? And I love that Nephi is going to give all that help. And he's not asking God to do anything he can't do himself. Just where's the ore? Well, they, he shows them where the ore is. He makes bellows to, from the skin of beasts. A lot of work is involved here. But he makes tools and begins to work on all of this. Now, he's going to describe a little bit more about the journey. And there's a phrase here that I absolutely love in verse 12 and 13. Because as he's making the fire to build his ship, he reflects on fire for a second and says, 
For the Lord had not hitherto suffered that we should make much fire, as we journeyed in the wilderness. For he said, and here's some more pronouns, personal pronouns, I will make thy food become sweet, that ye cook it not. And I will also be your light in the wilderness. And I will prepare the way before you, if it so be that ye shall keep my commandments. How's that for faith and diligence and heat? Wherefore, inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall be led toward the promised land. And then the best part of all. And ye shall know that it is by me that ye are led. I have loved that phrase ever since my mother sent it to me in a letter on my mission. And it stuck with me ever since. Something about going through life in a way that not only God can lead you, but that you can know he's the one doing the leading. It was near the beginning of my mission, if I remember correctly, when missions are at their hardest. And in some ways, what the Spirit was telling me through that verse is, Elder Halverson, your mission has to be hard enough to know you can't do it by yourself. Your mission has to be just hard enough that you turn to God and come to know Him in your extremities. That you've realized that you've done things beyond your mortal capacity because the immortal God was with you. Does that make sense? That's, that's what has hit me ever since. And so I love the thought of the Lord. I mean, there's a, there's a utilitarian aspect here, a pragmatism, where it's like, don't cook food on fire because where there's fire, there's smoke. And especially as you're getting out of Jerusalem, you don't want the authorities that have been freaking out over the death of Laban uh, to go out in search of you. And where would they have gone? Oh, he had the Arabian Peninsula. Oh, there's the, the smoke in the distance and we're going to hunt them down. So again, some, some utilitarianism and some pragmatism there. But far more important, can you imagine the spiritual gut check of blessing the food every day when it's raw meat sitting in front of you? I mean, this food doesn't need a blessing. I'm not going to pray over it. It's like it needs a priesthood blessing. <laughs> and, and yeah, Laman and Lamiel, I, could you not offer the prayers on the, the blessing on the food? I need somebody with incredible faith. Nephi, take it again. I mean, we can laugh about that, but that would be a gut check every single day. I think I had a few moments like that in the mission field too, where it's like, please don't let this food make me sick because I've never eaten anything like this before. For the most part, I love Puerto Rican food. There were a few meals though. And for them, it was every meal. But to provide that nourishment, to provide heat, to provide light, this is the pillar of fire in the wilderness. This is the cloud of smoke. But I will, I'll guide you, I'll direct you, I'll make your food edible. And by the time all is said and done, you'll know me. Because you knew you couldn't do all that. My son, whose life has been harder than mine, who has been through incredible difficulties in so many aspects. It did my heart so good to hear him teach from the pulpit during his mission the principle that this verse taught me and that which I later taught him, that life has to be just hard enough to prove to us we couldn't do it on our own to humble us to the point that we look up to God instead of just trusting in the arm of flesh. And by the time God, when, when God comes through for you and you reach your destination, you endure that trial, you become what you need to be. 
you know him. And Nephi knows him. Now, unfortunately, Laman and Lemuel don't. And so they murmur, they complain. And in fact, they call Nephi a fool because there's no way you're going to be able to build this ship. But there's an interesting detail here in verse 17 and 18. Our brother is a fool, for he thinketh that he can build a ship. Yea, he also thinketh that he can cross these great waters. I want to pause there and go, what else were you going to do, Laman and Lemuel? Just stay here. And they're probably like, yeah, exactly. Stay here. We, the beachfront property. We're calling it the land bountiful for a reason. We can stay here for good. For the first time, we don't, we're not tempted to go back to Jerusalem. But as for you, little brother, you're going to build a ship to cross this ocean? Yeah, whatever. And then Nephi says, Thus my brethren did complain against me, and notice this, and were desirous that they might not labor. For they did not believe that I could build a ship, and that's understandable. It would be hard to believe also. But worse, neither would they believe that I was instructed of the Lord. And they should have known better than that, because they've seen God's hand in Nephi's life and in theirs all along the way. I mean, angelic visitation, anyone? Interesting the difference in language. They did not believe one thing. They would not believe the other. The did not is not their fault. The would not is. And that spiritual stubbornness of, I do not believe that God can inspire mere mortals to do things beyond what a mere mortal can do. So, nope. You're wasting your time in building it. And I would be wasting my time in helping you, so I'm not going to. Now, I have learned over the years that usually we either complain or we contribute, but we hardly ever do both at the same time. Usually people who are complaining most about the church aren't doing much of anything to build it. They're complaining about the use of tithing funds when they're not contributing tithing. They're complaining about the way other people are serving in their callings when they're not really serving in their own. And yet, when we are out contributing, serving, doing the best that we can, really realizing our own inabilities and inadequacies, which leads us to cut other people some slack for theirs, the more I contribute, the less I complain. And I have learned that most of the time when I'm in a, the feeling of murmuring, if I was out working, I'd probably stop. I'd probably close my mouth. <laughs> and I'm making a difference. And look at the progress we're making. And this is going to work. Okay? Yeah, some, some, something interesting there. Eventually, we will see by the end of this chapter, Laman and Lemuel are contributing and not complaining. They help Nephi finally by the end. Okay? But I want, I want to stop here, though, or, or dig down a little, dive a little deeper. Because verse 19 to 22 is really important for us to understand what's going on in Laman and Lemuel's mind, because it's going to help us understand what's going on in Lamanite culture moving forward. Okay? So dig down a little deeper. At least snorkel with me. Verse 19, here's some of the sources of Laman and Lemuel's problems. I, Nephi, was exceedingly sorrowful because of the hardness of their hearts. Again, there's his, his sorrow, not his anger. That always seems to be the feeling behind what Nephi writes. So I'm sad that their hearts are so hard. And now when they saw that I began to be sorrowful, they were glad in their hearts, insomuch that they did rejoice over me. And that's pretty messed up psychologically. Taking joy in someone else's sorrow, pleasure in their pain. And they said, we knew that ye could not construct a ship. 
There they're questioning his skills, which is understandable. For we knew that ye were lacking in judgment. Now they're questioning his attributes. And they're not as justified in that. Wherefore they conclude, thou canst not accomplish so great a work. And how's that for confirming their doubt? Throwing it in his face. So that's one big problem. Their hardness of heart. Emotionally, there's a distance there where they cannot empathize. Nephi's heart is such that he can sorrow over their hardness. There's empathy there, but they don't feel any of it in return. There's this emotional distance, this psychological barrier where it's like, I can't feel for the other person. I don't see what they're going through. No, forget it. And I will critique them and criticize them and complain about them and not do anything to help. Next, verse 20, they say, Thou art like our father, led away by the foolish imaginations of his heart. So they've never overcome that doubt of dad's epistemological model. Yeah, you're just a visionary man, and it's stuff that you're making up in your own mind. Foolishness. Imagination. They don't believe. Remember that verse we saw in chapter 2. They don't understand the dealings of that God who created them. A God of revelation. A God of vision. No, for them, there's either no God, or it's a God that people just oh, claim to be listening to, but it's really foolish imagination and nothing more. Yea, they continue. He hath led us out of the land of Jerusalem. We have wandered in the wilderness for these many years. How's that for focusing on the negative instead of the positive? That's another well, psychological problem we all tend to fall into on occasion. Next, they start enumerating their miseries, and that can be problematic too. Our women have toiled, being big with child. They have borne children in the wilderness and suffered all things save it were death. Again, there's catastrophizing. It would have been better that they had died before they came out of Jerusalem than to suffer these afflictions. And again, there's painting a worst-case scenario. Ah, Laman and Lemuel need a good therapist, to be honest. They need someone that can do some oh, DBT, some, dia uh, some dialectical behavior therapy, right? Some CBT, some cognitive behavioral therapy. Someone to walk them through these negative thought patterns and help them see there are better ways to frame your experience. But no, it's better that we all would have died. But notice who they're complaining for. Their wives. Again, that might be justifiable to a degree in terms of, my, I'm at the breaking point because my wife is suffering. I get that. But I also wonder if there's a certain level of projecting their own complaints on somebody else. Like, I mean, I could handle this eight-year camping trip, but the poor women that have to go through it. It's actually funny, because if you go back to the beginning of this chapter, the women had stopped complaining quite a while ago. <laughs> like, no, we're good. We can handle this. It's amazing how strong I feel. I got the, this strange paleo diet, uh, raw meat in the wilderness, and yet I can nurse my children. That's miraculous. There's manna from heaven, so to speak. They stopped complaining. Laman and Lemuel haven't. But they're still invoking somebody else's complaints so they can project them and pretend they're not complaining themselves. Again, I, I hope, I don't want to, I'm always torn with Laman and Lemuel. I see myself in them on occasion. Uh, and that's always <laughs> devastating. They're real humans, and I don't want to caricature them to the point that I make them a, a Disney villain instead of a Shakespearean one, where it's a sympathetic villain. Okay, I don't want to make them two-dimensional. 
but I also do want to see myself enough that I can learn from whatever principles they can convey to me. Okay? By the way, I'm always fascinated by the fact that Nephi and Lehi try so hard to keep them on the journey. Because if their desire every time is, can we go back? And Nephi and Lehi honor agency, but plead every time, stay with us. The hardest thing about the journey is the fact Laman and Lemuel are there with them. If I were Nephi, I'd say, go back, and here's the keys to my camel. <laughs> Nothing's stopping you now. But no, those are my brothers, my big brothers, that I've always grown up admiring. For, for Lehi, those are my boys. Sons, prodigals they might be, but please just stay. We'll find a better inheritance for us all. Amazing how what they're struggling and fighting for to preserve the family. But then two more verses. 21, Behold, they say, these many years we have suffered in the wilderness. Still fixated on that. Which time we might have enjoyed our possessions and the land of our inheritance. See, they're still dreaming of going back. They, which lets you know, they don't think it's going to be destroyed. Last line is even harder. Yea, we might have been happy, which lets you know what they've been after. And there's nothing wrong with that. The pursuit of happiness is one of our inalienable rights, right? And yet, would you really be happy? It's a place of wickedness. It's a place that is being destroyed as we speak. So no, you wouldn't have been happy there. You wouldn't have enjoyed the land of your inheritance. There's no inheritance left. There's only one line ahead for us in a different land of promise. But back to that idea of righteousness or wickedness there. Look at verse 22. This one's amazing. And we know that the people who were in the land of Jerusalem were a righteous people. They're not going to get, that's why they don't think they're going to get destroyed. They don't deserve it. They're good. These were righteous people. And then here's their description of righteousness. It's eye-opening. For they kept the statutes and judgments of the Lord and all his commandments according to the law of Moses. Wherefore, we know that they are a righteous people and our father hath judged them and hath led us away because we would hearken unto his words. Yea, and our brother is like unto him. Now, on the one hand, this is complete loss of perspective. Uh, again, blaming. This is dad's fault. This is your fault. I can't believe we were stupid enough to listen to you guys. But what's more amazing to me is how they described their the fellow citizens of Jerusalem, the very people that were trying to kill Lehi from the start. I mean, these are peas in a pod. And what you're seeing in Laman and Lemuel is exactly what you were seeing in the people of Jerusalem to the point that they were blind to their own sins. Laman and Lemuel didn't see what they were doing wrong because they didn't see what the people were doing wrong. They didn't think they were doing anything wrong at all because they were keeping the law of Moses. And that's fascinating. Because it makes you wonder, what are you talking about? Uh, thou shalt not kill? And you're trying to kill dad? They were trying to kill Lehi? Uh, that's not keeping the law of Moses. So here's the thing that we need to wrestle with for a, moment, for a moment. The law of Moses has all kinds of different aspects. And if I can simplify things, there is a moral law that requires obedience and faithfulness and goodness. There's the Ten Commandments. There's so much of what, what we're doing. Then there's this all kind of legal law and certain practices, and you're supposed to do this and you can't do that. And it's not so much based in morality as it is in this is how we're just going to do things. Okay? 
and kosher laws could be something like that, or just this, this is what we consider legal or illegal. But then there's this third area, and it's the ceremonial law. And this is how we offer animal sacrifice. And this, this is how we run things in the book of Leviticus, for example, and, and all of that. And what's interesting, even if you were to take out the, the middle one and just compare the moral law and the ceremonial law, which were Laman and Lemuel talking about? Which one was the one that they thought, oh, the people are living it. Now, if they're wicked to the point of being destroyed by Babylon, they're not keeping the moral law. And in some ways, maybe you can get away without keeping, maybe you can get away with breaking the moral law if you're keeping the ceremonial law that supposedly is justifying our breaking of the moral law. Because, hey, I'm sacrificing sheep and oxen and goats. And is, I mean, these, these sin offerings and these burnt offerings, that's my get-out-of-jail card. I mean, as long as we're doing those things and our sins are going up in smoke, we are appeasing the deity. And we can kind of hide behind the smoke screen and break any moral law we want as long as we're keeping the ceremonial law. You see mentally how they're doing these, these mental gymnastics? By the way, when we meet... King Noah and the priests of Noah, uh, they're doing the same thing. They are keeping the ceremonial law. And as a result, th they think they're off the hook from ever having to keep the moral law. So in Laman and Lemuel's case, this is the first hint that you get of it, that, ah, have you and your people been reduced to a box-checking mentality that as long as I pay my tithe in, or as long as I did the sacrifice, or as long as I do these outward performances and ordinances, then I'm not required to experience a mighty change of heart. I don't have to become, because I'm doing all this stuff. You understand? That is a fascinating insight into human nature. Uh, the problems that led to the destruction of Jerusalem how Laman and Lemuel were approaching things and how so often we end up going through the motions thinking that's enough. And as long as I'm active in the church, I don't have to be active in the gospel. Or as long as I do these certain things, then morally I can be forgiven. Elder Maxwell once said, in a time of interesting political immorality, that he said, a few social commendables can never offset some moral inexcusables. Wow. And whatever ceremonial commendables the Israelites were doing, they did not offset the moral inexcusables that they were guilty of. From that moment, Nephi is going to spend the rest of this chapter whipping Laman and Lemuel into shape with a history lesson and a theology lesson. I'll be brief. The history lesson is Exodus. That's where we are, right? I mean, we're about to cross our Red Sea, and it's a bigger one. He's not going to part the waters, but he's going to part my ignorance and convey to me an understanding of how to build this ship. And I need your help. So come join me and exercise some faith, will you, brethren? He walks them through all kinds of Israelite history, hearkening to the Lord, are you doing that, Laman and Lemuel? Uh, knowing that God commanded Moses to do certain things. Don't you know God commanded Dad to leave and commanded me to build the ship? 
uh, he told them it was good for them to leave Egypt, just like it was good for us to leave Jerusalem. And yet, despite all the miracles God performed for the ancient Israelites and all the miracles he's performed for us, they murmured, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, just like you are. Are you, are you seeing the parallels, Laman and Lemuel? Because, man, you are living them to a T. But then this moment of absolutely clear emphasis, because of clear repetition. This is verse 31. Nephi says, It came to pass that according to his word, God's word that is, he did destroy them. And according to his word, he did lead them. And according to his word, he did do all things for them. And there was not anything done save it were by his word. So as far as Nephi is concerned, it all boils down to God's word. He will keep it. The question is, will we? Now from that moment, he continues his Exodus account until he comes to the conquest of Canaan. And then he shifts from history to theology in a really interesting way. This is about verse 33 where he makes the pivot. Because he's talking about the conquest of Canaan. And that, again, speaking morally, that's a morally fraught discussion. Was it right of the Israelites to come in and, and wipe out the, the previous inhabitants? Now, whether you study Joshua or Judges in the Old Testament, was this completely wiping out the inhabitants or was this allowing them to stay and trying to live among them? We've got different, different accounts, okay? But what's interesting here from, uh, from a theological perspective is what Nephi explains, starting in verse 33. Now, do ye suppose that the children of this land, who were in the land of promise, who were driven out by our fathers, do you suppose that they were righteous? Behold, I say unto you, nay. And the implication there is, otherwise they would have been permitted to stay. It's like, hey, you're not breaking divine promises. You can stay and share the promised land with us. That's fine. But no, they were not righteous. In fact, if you go back to Genesis and... Abraham is being shown the future of his posterity. And one of the reasons that they were going to be stuck in Egypt so long, according to the Lord, is because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. It's like they don't deserve to be driven out. Though they're keeping enough commandments. They're trying to live enough sufficiently moral lives that they don't deserve to be expelled, spewed out of the land, as the Old Testament sometimes says. But, oh, the day would come when the iniquity of the Amorites was full and they were not keeping promises and thus could not stay on the promised land. And so Israel came in to displace them. So here, as he goes on, it's like, no, nay, they weren't righteous. He asks another question. Do you suppose that our fathers would have been more choice than they if they had been righteous? I say unto you, nay. And that's amazing, actually, from an Israelite perspective. Nephi gets it in ways that most of his people wouldn't have. Because for him, it boils down not to just some kind of Israelite identity and like, hey, we're God's chosen people, so it doesn't matter how we live. It's like, we deserve this place, so get out. It's like, no, they were trying to live a faithful life. I mean, not the first generation of wander, wander, die, wander, die, but that next generation of following Joshua and Caleb in and trying to do what God commanded learning from their mistakes in the battle of Ai to be a little closer to God's commandments like they were in the battle of Jericho. And, and here we are moving forward. The conquest of Canaan is interesting from a historical perspective, but from a theological one, Nephi reframes the whole thing and says this was a matter of righteousness more than mere chosenness. 
And how are the people in Jerusalem doing? They're no longer keeping God's commandments, which means they don't, they can't be allowed to stay in the land of promise. No wonder Babylon's coming in to bring them captive back to Babylon. That's kind of how the promised land works. We drove out the original occupants. The Babylonians are driving out our people because God will have a covenant people and they have to keep their covenants. That's what it boils down to. The way he says it in verse 35, here's his conclusion. Behold, the Lord esteemeth all flesh in one. That's amazing. That's inclusivity. That's a God who is no respecter of persons. But that's only half the contrary. Here's the other half. He that is righteous is favored of God. Now, wait a minute. How can you say both of those at the same time? Well, that's what proving contraries is all about. God loves all of his children. He doesn't play favorites. But then again... He chooses those who choose him. Think about that. He loves all of his children with a perfect love, but he can't. He loves them all equally. He just can't bless them all equally, because blessedness requires a certain level of discipleship, obedience, covenant relationship. It's not just some kind of automatic. I picked you, and so I'm going to stick with you. It's like, well, will you stick with me? There's something powerful there. In some ways, it's incredibly humble of God to basically ask, will you stay on my side? Will you have me to be your God? Because I want to have you as my people. And again, not because you're better. And not because you're the only ones I want. I'm no respecter of persons. I esteem all flesh in one. This is the, this is the exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity that lies at the core of the Abrahamic covenant. In thee and in thy seed, there's exclusivity. Shall all the families of the earth be blessed? There's inclusivity. And so I'm choosing you because you chose me, and I'm choosing you to go choose everyone else to be chosen as well. I know that's a lot of choosing going on. But that's at the core of all of this. That's why Nephi continues to explain, Behold, this people had rejected every word of God. They were ripe in iniquity. The fullness of the wrath of God was upon them, and the Lord did curse the land against them and bless it unto our fathers. Yea, he did curse it against them unto their destruction, and he did bless it unto our fathers unto their obtaining power over it. Now he's just reversing it because Israel has reversed its righteousness. By the way, can you imagine? Here we are in the midst of a renewal of fighting in the Holy Land and people fighting over the, that land of promise. It always seems to be that way. And usually it goes down to who had it first and, and both parties have a leg to stand on with that. Uh, my five months in Israel taught me to love both Israelis and Palestinians, both Jews and Muslims. Uh, and to understand the humanity of both parties and the reality of both claims. But can you imagine, instead of, if, if, of if, imagine if they, instead of making this some kind of matter of who had it first, who has legal rights, imagine if it was who has moral rights to it. Who's going to keep the land of promise promising? Who's going to live God's promises, which include mercy and kindness and generosity and love and acceptance and open doors and nonviolence, who's going to be that kind? It's, think of this, instead, we, we picture an arms race, and like, 
Soviet Union versus the United States back during the Cold War. And there's this arms race of who can become stronger. Imagine if there was an arms race of who could become holier. Who could become not more powerful, but more promised, more promising, more, more valiant, more good, more Christ-like. And whoever races to that higher, mortal, more, that higher moral ground first gets to claim that ground as their own. Because now I can trust you with that land because you're not going to close the doors against anyone else that wants to come in and live similarly moral lives. You're going to be able to live by example now. I can trust you with this place. Can you imagine? By the way, more and more lately I've been pondering that not in terms of Israeli-Palestinian, but in terms of, well, I mean, we're going to see that in the Book of Mormon history, Nephite, Lamanite. Who deserves to keep the land? Who's living more moral lives? But imagine that with member and former member. Because unfortunately, so often when somebody leaves the church, the believers they've left behind become very vicious and hostile or judgmental and slam the door behind them because their feelings have been hurt. But unfortunately, that justifies their departure instead of inviting them to reconsider it. And especially as I've worked with ex-Mormon, anti-Mormons, and I had lunch with a few and tried to understand where they're coming from, I don't want to accuse them. I don't want to belittle them. I don't want to shame them. Despite the fact that they've done some interesting things to try to shame and belittle me personally, as well as other believers in general, I don't want to point fingers of blame I would rather race towards higher moral ground. Not in a self-serving, I'm better than you kind of holier-than-thou approach, because that's self-defeating, but rather love your enemies until you don't consider them enemies anymore. And to pray for those that despitefully use you and persecute you, even if they don't stop doing that, but it stops affecting you in a painful, personal way. You can approach them with grief instead of anger, like Nephi does. You can hold out hope and want them to remain with you in the journey instead of just cutting ties and just, fine, you go your way, I'll go mine. And honestly, if I could throw down the gauntlet, not into some kind of debate on who has more evidence on their side, because that's an endless one, but rather throw down the gauntlet of let's race towards greater kindness toward one another. And if you choose to stay outside the church, no problem. Could you just be kind towards those who stay? And you who stay, could you be kind to those who leave? Can we agree to disagree without becoming disagreeable? Can we, can we understand that God esteemeth all flesh in one? And if he does favor the righteous, then be righteous, not self-righteous. There's a huge difference there. Now, Nephi's going to go on and show that God judges all the nations based on their righteousness. And then he repeats in verse 40, He loveth those who will have him to be their God. And that's an interesting phrase because, well, doesn't he love everyone? Yes, he esteemeth them all in one. His love is unconditional, but his love is also perfect, which makes his blessings conditional. 
Now, yes, the sun shines on the, rain, on, on, the, on the just and the unjust, and the rain falls on both of them as well. So there's going to be some, some equal access to God, certain blessings of God. But to other blessings, no, we must prepare ourselves to receive them. And so when he says that he loves those that will have him, make that love in terms of loving blessedness. Not just generic love, because yes, he loves everyone. Does that make sense? There's, some, there's been some wrangling over those kinds of issues as well. And I hope that our reading of verse 40 can help lay some of that to rest. Okay? The way he puts it in the next phrase, Behold, he loved our fathers and he covenanted with them, which shows that love in its best manifestation is rooted in covenant. He'll keep his with us. We'll, we keep ours with him. Yea, even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he remembered the covenants which he made, wherefore he did bring them out of the land of Egypt. And in this whole time, he's trying to drop hints, subtle or not so subtle, to Laman and Lemuel. Like, do you not get it? This is the parallel work. This is the scripture story we're living right now. I invoked Moses and Pharaoh when we were facing a local Laban. I've been living the Exodus the whole way through. And here we are on the, on the shores of Jordan, looking across an ocean now at a land of promise. And I don't want to wander, wander, die I want to get there, and I want you to come with me. So we have to trust God, and we have to keep His commandments. We have to keep the covenant. We have to be more righteous than we've been, and righteous in the moral aspect, not just the ceremonial aspect. We've got to keep the whole law. And if that's the case, then the love that God has for all of His children can be manifest in a chosenness of us, since we've chosen Him, and we'll finally make it to the promised land. Despite my poor nautical <laughs> lack of experience and not having any clue how to build a ship. But I'm learning. I'm becoming what God needs me to be. And he's inviting you to do the same. So please, we got to figure this out. In verse 41, he gives another example from the, from the wilderness wanderings, and it's the brazen serpent. All they had to do was look and live, and they didn't do it because it was too easy. It was too simple. That's the way he, he phrases it. Because of the easiness of it. Because of the simpleness of the way. I had a, an MTC leader. I can't remember what his calling was, but an older man uh, that gave a sacrament meeting talk when I was in the MTC that I'll never forget. It was the greatest act of reverse psychology I'd ever been subject to. Because in his talk, he kept talking about the simple, easy things that make for a successful missionary. Like obedience and diligence and heed and faith and all those things. And scripture study and serve your companion and love the people and all this. But after everyone, he'd always say, Oh, and that is so simple that you're probably not going to do it. And daily scripture study, so simple that you'll probably skip days now and then. And doing this and doing that and helping your companion. So simple that most of you will never figure it out. And as a 19-year-old, I was like, I will be one that figures it out. And the reverse psychology worked marvelously on me. And I, on my mission, tried to keep all the simple, easy things. And in doing so, I looked to God and lived. It was amazing. That's what Nephi is inviting his brothers to do. But he also worries that you've been too hard of heart to feel the still small voice. 
The phrase he uses in verse 45 is, you've been past feeling. And because you're past feeling, I guess I'll have to raise the volume. And for much of the rest of chapter 17, the volume does increase. And Nephi's conviction is loud and clear. Some of the things he says, seriously, go slowly through the end. I, I, I can't go verse by verse with you here because we've already gone way too long. But things like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's Paul's language to the Philippians. Look, at, look for similar echoes in Nephi's language here. If God can do that for Moses, why can't he do this for me? I can do all... Th Part the Red Sea, piece of cake for the God of Israel. Will he be the God of Lehi and Nephi and Laman and Lemuel? Then he'll do great things. Still past feeling, big brothers? Well, don't you dare shove me off this cliff. I know you're mad at me. If you touch me, you will wither as a dry reed. That's the power of God that's in me. And they were so freaked out by that. Wow, that stopped them in their tracks. That's the hard thing about being past feeling. It takes stuff like that. It takes the threat of an angry God. It takes the threat of a powerful brother. When that's not what they ever wanted to be. They were still and small from the start. And it was only their deafness of ear and hardness of heart that required greater volume and stronger shaking. Ask Alma the Younger about that. An angel was required that day. When I'm sure Dad had a few family home evenings lessons here and there about not destroying the church. What are we willing to receive? Well, by the end of it all, the Lord inspires Nephi, just reach your hand out. It's been a little while. It's calmed them down. I mean, you're... Your strong conviction scared them into compliance for a time. But just to renew the lesson so it sticks a little longer. Stretch your hand out. And I will not wither them, but I will shock them. And hopefully that will be just enough of a wake-up call to get through the hardened heart and cement their willingness to do what's right at least long enough to get out to sea. Let's see. And that's exactly what happens. Laman and Lemuel are left feeling something, despite having been past feeling for a time. And they know it's the power of God. And so they finally admit it. The language of verse 53 is fascinating. God says, This will I do, that they may know that I am the Lord, their God. And that language, by the way, that they may know, is so often repeated in two places in the Old Testament. Exodus and Ezekiel. Exodus, here's the Nephite Exodus, right? Exodus, you're off in enemy territory. You've probably forgotten the power of the God of Israel. So I'm going to make it abundantly clear that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Same with Exodus, if that's Exodus, same with Ezekiel. They're no longer captive in Egypt, but now they're captive in Babylon. And again, enemy territory, easy to forget the Lord your God. So all the things that Ezekiel's going to do with them, that you may know that the Lord is God. And Laman and Lemuel are getting the same kind of bold introduction. That's chapter 17. Chapter 18 then, I can just say in a, in a couple of sentences in some ways. This is a famous story. Read it slowly and you'll see some amazing detail. But the ship, it now comes to completion and the voyage begins. The first several verses pay close attention to what kind of ship it is, because it's going to be different. That Leahona was of curious workmanship. Well, so is this ship, because nobody's 
sailed that far before. Well, the Jaredites did, but theirs was a curious kind of ship as well. In this one, he kept going up the mountain. He prayed oft. He got direction oft because his, his blueprints were going to be different than anything he'd ever seen. By the way, my amazing sister-in-law, the one I taught at the MTC and then returned the favor by telling me I had to marry her older sister, which I obediently did and gratefully did. That same sister, uh, who's now my sister-in-law, but at first glance was simply a sister missionary that I taught, she quoted the first few verses of 1 Nephi 18 and said, that's the kind of missionary I want to be. Different. Not a sister missionary after the manner of men. Not like everyone else. I want to do it the way God wants me to do it. And so, yeah, I'll climb the mount as often as he wants me to. I will pray and obey and do. I'd never seen a more focused missionary than she. And I thought, man, if the rest of your family is as incredible as you are, let me in. And thankfully they did. And thankfully they are. Uh, to be that kind of disciple is amazing. And again, Laman and Lemuel are helping with this and not complaining at all. Now it gets to the point, and again, I'll do this quickly, that they are, the, the ship is ready. They launch out into the deep. Again, you can imagine the opening prayer for that voyage. Like, I really hope, to, hope this works. I was nervous about the raw meat. I'm really nervous about <laughs> who the, the raw skills of my shipbuilding brothers. But here goes nothing. And it makes you wonder how long, how many days passed where they gained enough confidence that this ship was actually going to hold, the, keep the water out. It was actually making progress. And like, we're out. I haven't seen land for days. And I haven't seen leaks for at all either. And so, yeah, we got this. We did a good job. And at what point do you stop trusting in the arm of God because you're your worry has subsided. And now you trust the arm of flesh as if it was flesh that got you where you are. Because you get to a point in about verse 9 where Laman and Lemuel start to sing and dance. Well, that in and of itself isn't a problem. But when they do it with much rudeness, that's the word that's used twice, when they begin to forget by what power they had been brought thither, oh yeah, that's replacing the arm of God with the arm of flesh. I don't have to pray to keep the leaks out. We already did that ourselves. I don't have to pray for this voyage to be successful. Look, it, it has been. I'm sure it will be. But as a result of forgetting the Lord their God, God reintroduced himself in a way that even those past feeling would feel. You, you get a sense here? When all is said and done, that they may know that I am the Lord their God. What did he said earlier? Your voyage has to be hard enough to know that you can't do it on your own. That you may know that it is by me that ye are led. Well, unfortunately, you're at a point where you're doing it yourself. You think you can. So unfortunately, I'll have to prove to you that you can't. I've said this before. When you think you can do it on your own, God usually lets you try and that's when we crash and burn. The apostles that let Jesus fall asleep on the boat needed their own wake-up call by way of storm for them to give 
Christ the wake-up call that he didn't need, but they needed to have. Master, carest thou not let we perish. And he's like, well, you didn't care I was sleeping. This was your comfort zone. You grew up on the Sea of Galilee. You thought you had this without me, so you were content to let me sleep. Well, Laman and Lemuel were content to let the Lord sleep. In fact, I think they gave him sleeping pills. Don't, we don't want you on our journey anymore. And we don't need you on it, because look at how good we, did, we built the ship. And here comes the storm with incredible intensity. Unfortunately, the intensity of the hardness of Laman and Lemuel's heart matched it until it finally got to the point where they were afraid of being swallowed up in the depths of the sea. It wasn't their gray-haired mother and father and all of their pleading and tears. It wasn't their cute little baby brothers that had been born in the wilderness, Jacob and Joseph. It wasn't Nephi's wife and children with their tears and pleading. No, nothing but imminent destruction could get them to admit the Liahona isn't working and it's our fault. And we're all going to go down and it's our fault. And so they unloose or they loose, they untie Nephi. And despite incredibly sore arms and wrists and swollen body, you know, everything he's been through, doesn't complain about it at all. Just turns to God. I'm not going to worry about fixing the problem. I'm just going to seek the solution. I'm not going to chastise Laman and Lemuel. I'm going to let the Lord do that. In fact, he already has. No, I'm going to turn to the Lord, my God, and pray that he can still be our God and that a promised land can welcome us if we'll welcome the promises of God. And so it came. And there was a great calm, which I think describes not just the, the elements, but the emotions of those on board. Really fascinating story. Uh, in some ways to end it with a hymn that we've all come to love, Master, with anguish of spirit, I bow in my grief today. The depths of my sad heart are troubled. Oh, waken and save, I pray. Torrents of sin and of anguish sweep over my sinking soul. And I perish, I perish, dear Master. Oh, hasten and take control. That, to me, summarizes beautifully the prayers of repentance on the part of Laman and Lemuel the prayers of reconciliation on the part of Nephi. Please, God, take control again. We have been drowning in sin. That's Laman and Lemuel. And in anguish, that's the rest of us. But as we repent, as we change, may the master of ocean and earth and skies say once again, peace, be still. And he does. He did it for them. He'll do it for us. He's no respecter of persons. He loveth all of his children. He's just inviting us to reciprocate that love, to receive it and give it back in forms of worship and worthiness, of goodness and kindness, of repentance and forgiveness. Everything Lehi's little family is coming to learn. These historical storyline chapters of, at the end of 1 Nephi, are we prepared for the promised land? We have to master these lessons if we're ever going to set, set foot in this land of promise. 
and Nephi, Lehi, Sariah, Jacob, Joseph, even Laman and Lemuel are finally in a position to obtain that place of promise. 